I imagined that your uh, restful time might have been a lot like my restful time and just full of coming and going, full of things to do. And so I wanted to take a few minutes in the meditation to notice uh, how to bring the sense organs to rest, how to create a framework for insight. Often we think that insight is something special that happens after we've been practicing for a long time. But the point of the kind of meditation that we do is that insight isn't anything special. It happens all the time. Only because of our preconceptions, we don't notice that our experience is actually the content of our insight. So how can we notice this on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis? And I think it's by taking the middle way between acting and receiving our experience. So in meditation, how do we cultivate an attitude of alert repose that unites body, speech, and mind? So most of us, when we first sit down, Uh, because of the constant stimulation or bombardment of daily life, because of our habit of grasping after or rejecting sense impressions, our sense organs are not still. And so that's why I mentioned the eyes and ears. Because often we're not, we don't know that these are actually parts of our body. These uh, gates uh, have They have the part that perceives, and that's the part that holds our attention. But they're also physical organs, and they have sensation besides the um, input that we're used to paying attention to. So how do we balance the sense of touch all all, all over the body? The skin is the largest organ of the body, and their skin... There's feeling uh, inside the eyes, inside the ears, inside the nose, inside the mouth, inside the body that customarily we don't pay any attention to. So we're externally driven. That's why I said release the eyes, release the ears. Um, Let yourself be aware of the physical sensation of the eyeball resting in the eye socket. So that's a shortcut to... uh, a meditative state. That's why I mentioned that. Thanks so much. Thanks. So, um, any other burning issues before um, before our next entertainment? <laughs> okay. Yes. Hello. Um, I'm new to the meditation yes. and trying to focus on the breath. And usually I have lots of thoughts in my mind. Yes. Um, but tonight there were a couple of times where I didn't have any thoughts at all. And mm-hmm. I wasn't paying attention to the breath either. It was just kind of empty. And if I notice that happening, 
Should I just allow it to continue to be empty, or should I refocus on the breath? Or that's interesting, isn't else? it? How how um, the object of awareness disappears. Um, it can disappear in a variety of ways. So um, all objects of meditation, once they become subjects of meditation, become something different from what we thought. And that's the way in which an object of meditation can become an insight. So all meditations have an end. They have a beginning, middle, and an end. So just so long as you're not ignoring the beginning and middle of the meditation on breath, to get to the end of the meditation on breath, just so long as you're not ignoring anything, you can leave yourself alone. But if you are ignoring something, then collect yourself back to the subject of your meditation, which is the breath, the rise and the fall of the breath. So I don't know if if you notice, um, there are probably many people here who meditate on the breath, right? Um, So some people meditate on the breath, some people meditate on the body, some people meditate on the mind, mind object feelings. There's many meditations that we can do. There's many meditations as there are people. But if you're meditating on the breath, you might notice that experience has a texture. And that if you're also working with physical awareness, that on the inhalation, the alertness is easier to maintain. And on the exhalation, the repose is easier to maintain. And that comes into a rhythm. And when it comes into a rhythm, we tend, our experience tends to become soothing to us. Okay? Now, that soothingness, if there's a, uh, if you maintain the um, upright framework of the body, that soothingness is an important part of meditation and it has a name. And that name is shamatha. Shamatha is a feeling of complete safety in the body uh, and, and unity in body, speech, and mind. And that develops over time. One unites body, speech, and mind. Um, the intention for the, uh, to rest in a particular subject of meditation with the uh, physical attitude of meditation and perhaps uh, a, um, a word or a concept that's only a framework for attention. And so that's called shamatha. And um, eventually, what we thought was our subject disappears. And that can either be vipassana or it can be ignorance. So check out which one it is. <laughs> um, so actually, um, have you heard the story of Buddha this week? Recently? No? You know that this is a, a clearly it's a time of national holiday, right? Um, 
many uh, religions and many cultures celebrate the return of the light at this time. Okay, so Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and Buddha's enlightenment are all stories about light. And um, that's why I put a candle on the altar because I wanted to talk about light tonight. We say enlightenment. We don't usually say endarkenment unless we're trying to make a joke. But actually, in um, light there is uh, dark. You know, in the concept of light there is dark. (coughs) So the Buddha... um, 2,500 some odd years ago when he was still a prince uh, Prince Gotama left home to wake up he wanted to wake up to human suffering what, how it arises and how it might end and after six years of very hard work he still hadn't found an answer Actually, he, uh, by very hard work, I mean that he gave up his family. He left his family in the middle of the night. And um, because he had to find an answer in his own life to the burning question of why do we suffer and how can we bring that to an end. And he thought... um, he sought the teachings of the very best yoga teachers of the time, particularly Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. And he entered a state of concentration under each one of those teachers. But each time he uh, received the teaching and realized it, he also realized that those teachings did not bring an end to suffering for him. And so, uh, with a group of five, uh, a group of four other young men, Prince Gotama decided to try asceticism, that maybe he could starve or burn out the impurities and realize awakening. So, uh, the sutra says that he got himself down to one grain of rice or one mung bean a day. And that his, uh, he um, sat so vigorously and ate so little that his skin became dry and changed colors. That through his belly you could see his backbone and through his backbone you could see his um, front. And that his hair fell out in big clumps and uh, he became emaciated and weak like someone at the end of their life. And then the story says that um, he was in despair. He hadn't realized awakening. And he um, remembered, suddenly he remembered uh, a, um, an incident from when he was a young boy that one day when he was a kid, the family had been having an enormous family outing um, in, a, in a beautiful, green, grassy place. And um, 
completely replete with food and drink and in the company of his family he had wandered up to a tree a rose apple tree and sat under the tree and experienced happiness that um, he wasn't hot he wasn't cold he wasn't working he wasn't not working he was just in the middle and uh, at peace and so on that day, the Buddha, um, Prince Gautama, realized that all this time he had been barking up the wrong tree. All this time he had been um, forcing one part of his mind to subdue another part of his mind and that he had been making a mistake in his approach. So he decided that it was time for sanity. And he went down to the banks of the Naranjara River and bathed for the first time against his promise to the four other ascetics. And having bathed, he walked up and down the river. <coughs> Excuse me. A young farmer um, girl, Sujata, brought him some um, rice cooked in milk and held it out to him. And he said, thank you, and ate. Also against his promise to the other ascetics, but fulfilling the deeper promise to himself. And then uh, he started looking on the bank of the river, and the feeling was building up in him tonight is the night that I realize, after thousands of lifetimes of searching, that I realize uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit here. Tonight's the night that I'm going to commit myself to realizing the truth according to the middle way. Not too much, not too little. And so he found a um, ficus tree and he sat down under the tree and um, immediately a lot of resistance hit him. So um, the Buddha, the the sutra talks about how Mara came to greet him. How uh, first uh, Mara sent all sorts of um, fearsome images to uh, shake the prince's determination, and all sorts of fearsome and disturbing um, thoughts. And he said, no, I'm not going to be disturbed by this. Then Mara sent all sorts of um, attractive thoughts to disturb him. And and, uh, the sutra is very specific about this. The daughters of Mara came and kind of did their dance around the Buddha uh, as he was sitting there. And he said, "Uh, no, thank you. I'm just going to sit here. And then, um, as the story says, Mara challenged the Buddha and said, um, Mara is the the ruler of delusive thought. And um, so Mara said, um, 
Delusion rules. You know, who doesn't have delusions? And I have thousands of witnesses, millions of witnesses, billions of witnesses to um, testify to the power of delusion. What do you have? You got nothing. Uh, And uh, the Buddha considered for a moment. And then he uh, reached down and touched the ground and said, uh, the earth is my witness. And as his finger touched the ground, the ground joyfully testified and shook in six different ways. The earth was his witness. And then Mara said the equivalent of curses foiled again. (laughs) Went flying away. And um, the Buddha just sat. And as he was sitting there in the early part of the night, he realized the uh, quality of life of every creature there is. And a little bit later in the night, he realized all of his um, history, and his, particularly the history of his motivation in all of his lives, in all of his thoughts, and how it had come to be. And then later he realized uh, how delusion itself comes to be and how awakening itself comes to be. And then at the very end of the night, just in the false dawn, when the morning star arose, the beautiful light of the star came to him and at that moment everything was shed. And he said, How wonderful, how wonderful I now see that all beings from the very first are fully endowed with the knowledge and virtuous characteristics of the fully awakened ones. Because of their habits and preconceptions, they don't realize it. Now I and all beings awaken together. And um, that was his awakening. And that morning, a great and beautiful joy, a complete joy, suffused his entire being. And all beings laughed at the same time. Uh, And after he woke up, uh, the Buddha, because he was the Buddha now, Uh, There's a lotus pond there in Bodh Gaya. And he went walking around the lotus pond for seven days and just sat and walked and sat and walked like we sit and walk, uh, savoring the taste of supreme perfect awakening that respects the way everything is and realizes the ultimate truth of how things are all at the same time. And uh, afterwards, he had to decide what to do. And there's, there's um, a marvelous painting of the Buddha um, at the top of a hill um, in a fog 
His feet are walking one way and his head is turning the other way. And uh, the meaning of that painting is that after the Buddha woke up, he had to decide whether he was just going to sit in bliss and complete harmony forever or whether he was going to help us. And he de- uh, clearly he decided to help us. And for the next 40 years, he walked the sands and dust of the long path, uh, of the, the path of many faces, teaching the same message again and again. And if you read the Mahapanya, you can read all the sutras and you can read the names of the villages and you can look on the internet and find out what the modern names of those villages are. And um, before there was internet, I looked it up. It took me a long time, but it wouldn't take you a long time. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, and you can, you can see and understand what, what he did in those 40 years. In the last two months of his life, Um, the Buddha walked 200 miles. You can tell from the names, the place names, he walked 200 miles saying the same thing in simpler and simpler ways. And um, then the Buddha passed uh, telling us to light our own light. And so that's why there's a candle here this evening. Because... um, that candle is your candle and my candle. So, um, I actually wasn't going to talk about the Buddha's awakening this evening, particularly. I had prepared a little lecture on, um, on not doing evil and doing good. Um, but the story of the Buddha just came to me very strongly when I walked in the door here, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to speak about it. Because uh, the, the thing about the Buddha that's really wonderful is that Buddha is not an abstract principle. Uh, Buddha is a person, just like you and me. And he was a very accomplished person, But he was human, and because he was human, it means that he was limited in his life. But because of his effort um, over thousands and thousands of lifetimes, he realized um, the truth. And uh, thousands and thousands of lifetimes are actually present in this room. So, um, anyway, as I said at the beginning, insight is not special. Insight is our experience, moment after moment. And it's only our habits and preconceptions that prevent us from seeing that. So, what's it going to be today? You know, can we uh, take a step into our life as it is? And that's what we call awakening. So, um, 
I have no idea how long I'm supposed to speak. Till nine o'clock, including questions, including questions. Maybe now might be a good time to um, take some questions. Um, You get to talk about this too. Yes. I don't understand when you say that when the Buddha was enlightened, that is it everything else is enlightened too? Mm-hmm. So what's the connection? How, do, how does that work? How does it work that when Buddha is enlightened, everything is enlightened? Yeah. That's the special quality of the Buddha. Um, the fact is that um, we think that there's a this and there's a that. We think there's a me and there's a you, and there's an I and there's an it. But um, it's like um, two people holding the ends of a pole. You know, there can't be one end of the pole without the other end of the pole. There can't be it without me. Okay? And there can't be me without all the other, all the it's that there are. And there can't be, um, um, anyway, just, what is it to be awakened? So we think that uh, to be awakened, we, we are going to be wise and we're going to know something about something. That's, our, that's a, a cultural preconception about what awakening is. But awakening is actually something different. It's when anything awakens us. When the unique quality and texture of something is allowed to surprise us. um, Allowed to bring something refreshing and new. Which is called itself. So You know, I play this game with children sometimes in lecture. You know, we talk about, well, okay, um, here's a glass of water. Where did this water come from? We take it from the water all the way to, you know, Great Aunt Minnie or um, tigers or sky or earth. And it's pretty easy to do that. Um, it's, It's easier than six degrees of separation. So without everything else, there can't be anything. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. That's not very good English. Without everything else, there can't be anything. (laughs) That's not really good English, but it means that without, um, it means that a thumbnail cannot occur unless there are banana leaves. Okay. Uh, for most of us, this is intellectual. But for Buddha, um, thumbnails and banana leaves and, um, I don't know, accounting and, uh, I don't know, what? Yeah. Fiat, Fiat. Is this like an expression of the absolute? Or how do you, how do you... 
or is it like sort of like the intellectual connection that if there's no sun then there's no food and I can't eat and nobody else can eat or, so there's that sort of sort of like mechanical connection mm -hmm. and then there's sort of then there's the connection of um, that we don't that we are all one mm -hmm. or that um, that it's just the breath or that it's it's not manifestation of stuff I, I don't Maybe it's a little late at night. <laughs> uh, there, there are uh, the Buddha taught two truths. Actually, the Buddha taught three truths: uh, ultimate, relative, skillful. Okay, um, the ultimate sense of I and all beings awake at the same time means that there isn't an I and there isn't an all beings. There's only awakeness and that's called ultimate truth. Everything is of the same nature and that's called ultimate truth. The relative sense of I and all beings awake at the same time is the mechanical um, at the same timeness that you talked about. You know, uh, no... Um, no Zafu without trucks sort of uh, awakening, that we're all connected that way. You pull on, pull on um, uh, pizza hard enough and you'll find um, amoebas uh, or um, satellites. I don't know exactly how, but I'm sure we can, I'm sure these intelligent people uh, all of us together know how. And skillful truth is knowing, um, um, being able to see the connection enough and being able to be surprised by what you don't know enough that uh, you know what to bring out at any particular time. And that's Buddha's skill and means. The Buddha knows when to lean on conventional truth. The Buddha knows when to lean on ultimate truth. So, um, but what does that mean emotionally? You know, emotionally. Because it's not, it's not just all, uh, you know, kind of a little, uh, oh, it's all one sort of thing. That's, that emotionally is not satisfying. But uh, think about the most beautiful and intimate experience you've ever had in your life. What is real intimacy? You know, um, the times when um, the times when you've actually had an experience that somebody loves you. You have a sense of oneness that transcends the boundary of skin or of difference in some way. And uh, that is a, a very small taste of ultimate. And um, what is it when, you know, you just have a good day and everything's clicking and you feel like, oh, this is connected and that's connected and, gee, the, um, you know, my long-lost buddy is calling me up and... and um, we're talking and, 
you know, today my car got 26 miles to the gallon instead of 22. And that's a sense of um, connection in the rel- in relative life. Or, um, I'm so happy that uh, people are following the law on this uh, holiday weekend and that people are staying within the lines on the highway as I drive 50 miles. That's a joy in relative truth. So, um, it's not it's not unknown to us. It's very normal. These um, this quality is very normal. And another way of talking about ultimate is just to say that nothing is what we think it is. Um, that doesn't sound as satisfying as the actual act of being surprised by the beauty of something just as it is. So, I have spent the past 35 years um, allowing myself to settle into uh, the beauty of normal human life. Um, The longer I practice, the more I can enjoy, you know, dishes and um, waking up in the morning. And um, if somebody happens to pass me on the street and I have a reaction, I don't have to just go with that reaction or that preconception about who that person is. I can meet them. So this seems, uh, this might seem really kind of blah if you think about supreme perfect enlightenment. It might seem like, you know, not what you're here for or way too normal. But in actual fact, it's a great relief. So, um, In actual fact, um, that quality of um, acknowledging and noticing everything just as it is and being awakened by it opens doors into life moment after moment between people and um, between you and everything else. I can't praise normality enough. So, um, the Buddhist teachings are teachings about human life. They're not teachings about something special. They're just teachings about what happens when we get distracted from how things are and when we are actually present for how things are. That's all.
Can I tell you about a party we had um, the weekend of the 17th? Hmm? No, can, may I? May I tell you? Okay, what time is it? So how are we? Five of? Okay, so this is a... I'll, I'll just tell you the short version of this party because I want to tell you a, a, a story. I could end with a poem, but um, I love this so much that I wanted to share it with you. So recently I became the head of outreach for San Francisco Zen Center, and there's an event called the Clara House Party. And um, this is um, their homeless families that are trying to find homes and um, reestablish their lives after having been in trouble. So San Francisco Zen, at San Francisco Zen Center, some people put on a party for the shelter uh, that's called Clara House. And so this year, they came in and, um, you know, for some reason, we really uh, got off on this subject of light this year. So people came in and kind of suspicious about what was going to happen. And we met them with a candle. And um, Blanche Gills and my older Dharma sister lit the candle, lit her candle from the altar. And then each person passed the light to the next person and said, I give you light and love. And so as the candles were being lit, we turned down the lights so that the only light in the room was the light of each person. And then um, we said, well, make a wish and blow your candle out. So everyone did. And then it was dark. And then there was drumming. And so as the lights came up, people started dancing. And by the end of the dance, which was maybe four minutes into the party, Everybody was having a good time, a really good time. And then um, we danced to the back of the room where um, someone told us the story of um, Kwanzaa. It was a man and his son. The son carried pictures of the qualities, of the principles of unity and so on around the room and someone else told the story of Hanukkah as a freedom story and someone else told the story of Christmas as a story of a homeless family and someone else told the story of Buddha as a story of a lost prince who became um, a light to the world And then Santa came and gave a present to every child. And by that time, you know, I didn't really have any particular expectations about the children. But one of the children, a little boy, said, uh, you know, a couple presents had been handed out and someone started opening theirs. And one of the little boys said, no, let's not, let's, let's wait and let everybody get a present, and then we'll open it up. And they did. 
every single child waited with his or her present on their lap until everybody had a present and then they all opened them up. I'd never seen anything like this in my whole life. A room full of eight-month to 12-year-olds and their, and their mothers. And not one opened their present and no adult said to leave them alone. The kids had that idea. So then they opened it up and then we heard things like, I love this. I mean, it was, it, was the, it was the most amazing thing. And then we had one corner of face painting and another corner of cookie decorating, another corner of balloon animals. And then the room got totally trashed. <laughs> and then we all cleaned up and then it was over. And this is light. Okay? So that's the story of the Christmas party (laughs) or the Kwanzaa or Hanukkah or Buddha's enlightenment party. And I give this to you as a gift. Thank you very much for your attention. I feel honored to speak with you this evening. And I hope just wherever you you go, um, let your light be uh, shining in the world and so if that's true then everything that you do will give life and healing to the people around you and to yourself just like the Buddha um, walking from the tree uh, to all of us thank you so much